Hello and welcome to the Global Digital Banker podcast. Today, I'm joined by Tony McLaughlin, Head of Emerging Payments at Citibank, and we're at Cybos Day 2. Tony, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Adele. Pleasure. This year's theme at Cybos is titled Thriving in a Connected World, so recognising the growth opportunities available from digital technologies to initiate new platforms, value propositions and business models. As we enter this new digital era powered by APIs, we also enter this era of consumer consent and data compliance and new regulation. City recently released a white paper on this very topic, so I think it would be great if we could kick off by sharing a bit about the white paper and uh, what it aims to address. Yes, we released a paper called The Age of Consent that talks about what we consider to be the foundation of the digital economy, which is the ability for people to transact with security in digital ecosystems. So that's what we talk about, the age of consent being whether you're in, in the GDPR environment where you have to give informed consent or whether you're in an open banking environment where you have to give your bank consent to share data or to authorized transactions, it really all comes down to digital ID. And the question is, who's in the best position to provide that digital ID? Yeah, definitely. We're going to tap into that soon, actually, because I think that's such an interesting topic. Is it banks? Is it fintechs? Is it the government? And we've seen that kind of play out in a number of ways globally. Before we kind of go into that, I think strong customer authentication has been quite a uh, hotly discussed item so far at Cyboss, and we're all aware of the pushback on this from the FCA. So far, it's proved to be quite an obstacle in open banking for organizations, merchants, and consumers. Uh, There's still a lot to be learnt from it, particularly from a consumer understanding point of view. It's almost starting to remind me of when GDPR was rolled out, and I think everyone just panicked about the implications of, well, in that case, losing half their marketing Mm -hmm. databases, I guess from SCA point of view, having business implications about purchasing and spending. What's your view on this and how do you expect merchants to overcome this friction factor when this does go live? So the the regulations are well-meaning because the authorities want fraud to be reduced Mm. and there's obviously a lot of fraud that happens in online transactions. Online transactions are more expensive for merchants because of the greater fraud risk. So there's a good intention. But in a sense, what this illustrates is how difficult it is in the digital world to get first things first. So we had this great intention of reducing fraud, but actually the the mechanisms for achieving that were not well developed. The strong customer authentication mechanisms deployed by the banks are proprietary and clunky. And that doesn't really match up to the expectations of merchants. So Amazon wants to do one-click ordering. That doesn't work if you're redirected to your bank to do a strong customer authentication. The Uber experience, you know, you order an Uber, you get where you're going and you walk out. That doesn't work if you're redirected to your bank for a strong customer authentication. So we, we do want to get to frictionless payments, but we want to get to frictionless secure payments. And again, all roads lead back to digital identity. And there's a strong argument that's made by David Birch in his book book called Identity is the New Money. Payments equals identity plus accounting entries. And the accounting entries are the simple part. The difficult part is the digital identity. And frankly, that's the piece that we have to crack is Mm -hmm. let's have digital identity as the foundation of the digital economy. 
really starting off focusing on digital identity before we continue further down that road. So when it comes to the ownership of digital identity, um, as I touched on a bit earlier, we've seen a number of different approaches globally. You stated in your talk yesterday that it should be bank-led. So can you share your thoughts on this for the audience and also some of the lessons learned so far from other markets? Absolutely. So we see different models in different countries, but Mm. there's one thing in common, whether it's the Adhar scheme in India Now, Adhar means foundation in Hindi. So this thing they have in India called the India Stack of electronic payment systems is all built on Adhar. It's a national government ID scheme and it's powered the, basically the dematerialization of payments in India. Mm -hmm. It's a government-led scheme. In Sweden, we have bank ID. Almost 100% of Swedish adults have a bank ID. And they use it for, so it powers the authentication on Swish, which is the person-to-person and person-to-business payment mechanisms. But with that bank ID, you can also access central government services, local government services, and a whole host of other digital services. Right. So it can be bank-led, it can be government-led, it can be a consortium. In Belgium, there's a consortium made up of the mobile companies, the banks, and others in the It's Me scheme. But what needs to be there is a, is a federated digital ID, which is almost like you abstract the ID out of the individual um, applications. Right, so yeah. each bank doesn't have to do its own ID. Each government doesn't have to do its own ID. Each digital service doesn't have to do its own ID. It's, it's a layer in the economy mm-hmm. that everyone can rely on. And that's tremendously growth enhancing. In fact, McKinsey came up with a study that said that if there's a good digital ID, GDP could be uh, grown by between 3 and 13%, depending on the country. So this can feed through, very significant, can feed through to economic growth, and it will help us us solve GDPR, which is based upon consent. It will help us solve open banking, which is based upon consent. It will help us have a single market for money in Europe if we have a pan-European federated ID scheme. So it really is the silver bullet and you know frankly lots of people are coming forward with uh, remedies for what's wrong in payments some people think you need a new private currency to compete with national currencies some people think that you need to have central bank digital currencies the silver bullet is digital id and the most practical way of delivering that is a federated bank id Mm. and do you think i mean it's quite clear and as you stated that the benefits from having such a thing what about from a security perspective surely there's you know if, if we've got that in a centralized place yes. it would make it quite vulnerable for say hacking or potential so the, fraud if they were able to infiltrate so the the id schemes the federated bank id schemes use the latest standards and the latest cryptography and in a sense what you have is all forces all the all the good guys all the white hats focused on staying in advance of their threats. That's the experience okay. in, in Sweden, for example, and in Norway. So rather than the good guys being spread out, like each bank doing their own yes. security, yeah. you know, each government doing their own security, all the good guys are focused on one scheme, keeping that ahead of the bad guys. Mm. And that, that's proven to be a good model in countries like Sweden, Norway, Denmark, and others. That's what works. So all we're pointing out is we need to have digital ID as a base layer for the digital economy. Could be a national scheme, could be a consortium. Bank ID is proven. That's why Sweden is almost a cashless society. Mm. 
And what do you think uh, in terms of timelines? Is this something we'll see in the next 12 to 24 months or is this a bit more of a longer trajectory? It's just about willingness and focus, Adele. Um, unfortunately, it's such a noisy environment in the payment space and such a noisy environment in the digital space that people are, are running after 100 things at the same time and, and running after the latest shiny object. Yeah. And you have you know, very senior people who have a, a terrible disease called fear of missing out. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Fear of missing out on blockchain. Fear of missing out on machine intelligence. Fear, fear of being disrupted. Right? No. Everyone reads these business uh, school case studies about the management teams who didn't see what was coming, and nobody wants to be in that case study in five years. Correct. Yeah. And even when there is, you know, all of this new payments technology coming out, even if it is, say, you know, biometrics or fingerprint ID, um, yeah. which at the time was such an amazing thing. Now it's such a hygiene factor, but you don't want any sort of barrier to acquisition or usage Absolutely. from not having that technology. Absolutely. So it's I mean, a lot to be across. Look, the, the biometrics are, are good. And as we, what, what does a good strong customer authentication look like? It means, you know, buying something online and authenticating with your mobile device through the fingerprint reader, through the face ID. Mm. You know, the, the bank ID can be bound to your device, but you're using the biometric sensors in the device to activate and call up that ID. Mm-hmm. So it's your, your bank is, is giving you a credential that says you are who you say you are. That's bound into your mobile device that you've got with you all the time. And you bind that to the, the biometric capability of the device. And whether that is a you know NFC talking to a point of sale terminal or the QR code, but you're using these technologies in the device based upon the bank ID to conduct securely in the digital economy. Again, that's the silver bullet. Mm. And you know what we think you asked about the timing, it just needs industry focus. Mm-hmm. I believe that industry focus from the banks may come um, because I think the penny is beginning to drop that the banks might lose out on the basics. So for, for the world to be bank friendly, the bank account needs to be the primary store of value, the bank balance sheet needs to be the primary source of lending and the bank needs to be central in ID. And those things cannot be taken for granted given the way things are going. Definitely. And actually on that uh, strong customer authentication with the mobile phone verification, I mean, smartphone penetration in the UK is significantly high. However, you know, when I think about, say, my grandparents, no offence, guys, um, (laughs) that they use, uh, it's certainly not a smartphone that they use. And I think even then it would be a push to kind of understand what's going on with that. I never manage the SMS or Absolutely. those sorts of things. So how does that work with those sorts of consumers? You're, you're quite right. And I have family members as well who will not be able to engage very effectively with that kind of technology. Yeah. Um, you know, binding a bank ID into a phone, this is way beyond mm. the interest or the, or the you know, the, the, the capabilities of, of, you know, my father, you know, for example. Mm. So. There, there's going to be a big question about access to uh, physical payment instruments. You know, going forward, as yeah. cash dwindles, then what happens when merchants say, "I'm, I'm sorry, but I only accept electronic payments." What right. happens to that person who is maybe old or in a or in a, or in a vulnerable situation? And that's going mm. to be a that's going to be a societal problem. Mm. 
And my response to that is that I think really, really good biometric-based ID could be a partial answer um, because whereas my father might not be able to log into an electronic banking system, he might be able to put his thumb on, you know, thumbprint or his fingerprint onto a device and do the payment that way if it's yeah. well, really, really well designed. But there's also going to, I think, have to be for quite some time a, a right to access other forms of payment, like access yeah, to cash. as the transition. As the transition takes place. Great. And then on the open banking front, I mean, already this week we've seen, and just generally for the past year, endless discussions around open banking, endless presentations, white papers, about a bazillion tweets. So this is all kind of being focused around the potential benefits and opportunities of open banking and what we've seen so far. But when will we actually start to see the monetization of this? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, monetization of open banking is actually the core issue mm. because the, the regulators opened up the banks back offices through these APIs and they chose two services one is account information and the other one is payment simple payment initiation mm -hmm. and for neither of those transactions is the bank able to make any money they're basically free services mm -hmm. so you can understand why the banks are in this kind of compliance mode where they've got to spend a lot of money to do the work but they can't make any money from the services so really what's required is for the banks to go way beyond the regulatory minimums and create APIs for retail banking services, wholesale banking services, where they can make money, where they can commercialize those APIs. Mm -hmm. And we have uh, worked with SWIFT, FinTechs, BigTechs uh, and merchants to build a couple of API specifications to try to show the way. Mm -hmm. One is the pay later API mm. that enables any bank to offer a service that looks like Klarna or Afterpay or a firm, you know, a buy now, pay later Buy now, service. pay later, BNPL. BNPL, <laughs> great acronym. And we've also built the uh, a pre-authorization uh, API specification mm -hmm. because there are some transaction types that merchants need to support that don't work in, in bog standard vanilla open banking. And the good example of that is if you are staying in a hotel, when you walk into the hotel, the hotel wants to have some security that you're going to pay. So they do a pre-authorization yeah. on your card, but you don't know how much your bill is going to be until you check out. Yeah, in That's case you ate all the snacks in the mini bar and didn't All the them. snacks in the mini bar, yeah, <laughs> all the chocolate bars in the mini bar. And whatever else with the minibar, absolutely, that's the, the, the big swing factor. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely just the healthy nuts and other yeah. healthy choices. I don't think I've ever drank a minibar, uh, but, you know, maybe that should be on the bucket list. <laughs> yeah, the work travel bucket list. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think the pay late API integration will be a really incredible piece of technology to watch. I think, you know, we've seen it in the Australian market with the penetration of Afterpay. I think it's about 68% uh, awareness, awareness of, of those sorts of services and I think we've got Klarna here we've got Afterpay now branded as Clearpay here I think it'll be interesting to see how Buy Now Pay, Pay Later takes off when it is um, provided from a, yeah. a, an incumbent bank a high street bank well look this is touching on the the base like reality of digital disruption in the world of platforms hitting mm. all sorts of different industries you know we've seen the world of digital hitting the physical high street We've seen, you know, I think in the UK, something like 5,000 stores, you know, closed down this year. 
we've seen the impact of digital platforms in the travel space. You know, a very large uh, travel company mm. that's been around for 174 years yes. just went into liquidation. And we will see the impact of digital platforms on, on banking as well. And the place to look is, is lending because at, at the very heart of banking is the balance sheet, it's lending. And so when you see that um, in China, Ant Financial has made loans of over $100 billion, WeChat Pay over $100 billion, PayPal Credit globally $100 billion, Afterpay, Affirm, Klarna, mm. this form of lending. If you, if you believe that people will transact more and more online, then there comes a point in that customer journey whether you're buying 200 bucks worth of fast fashion as mm -hmm. millennials apparently do <laughs> and send the half of it back yes or buying something more high-end high then there comes a point where you have to say am I going to pay now or pay later mm. and that's going to that's a key decision point pay now or pay later mm. even before the purchase because you want to know which flat screen t TV you can you can afford which t flat screen TV you can buy and if the availability of credit will be influential on what on what you buy so it's going to be very very easy to intercept that customer's decision in a digital world with a non-traditional API driven proposition mm -hmm. and that's why I say very firmly that you know banks are always talking about digital transformation a bank isn't digital until it can lend through API mm. And so where can people go to read more about these new APIs published by City? So actually it's published by Swift. Swift um, sorry. The reason why we, we work with Swift is because Swift are the guardians of the ISO 20022 standard. They've mm -hmm. got a long track record in um, standardization of financial messaging and it's a community of over 10,000 banks. So we worked under the auspices of Swift to create the pay later API, the pre-authorization mm -hmm. API. All of the details are avail available on the Swift website and what we want to do is continue to work with other partners. I mean, it's a, when you work on standards, it's non-competitive, it's open and it's commu mm. community-based. We want to build a library of retail banking and wholesale banking APIs that are applicable globally mm. because another issue with open banking is it's currently at the national level. Yes. And it doesn't make any sense to have API standards at the national level. Platforms tend to be global. So the platforms, again, this is another you know critical point, which is in these big tech companies, the most scarce resource is engineering. Mm. They, they don't want to spend their engineering resources recreating banking, recreating financial services. They don't want to spend their engineering resources plugging into lots of different API standards. They just mm. want to plug it simply. If the banks leave a vacuum, it will be filled. So, you know, they, they say that nature abhors a vacuum, digital abhors a vacuum. Any vacuum left by the banks, if the banks don't deliver the services required by the digital platforms, they will find another way. It will be a fintech way or mm. a big tech way. Just a very simple example of this is, think about Airbnb hosts. Airbnb hosts make money from renting out their properties. Airbnb, I'm sure, would love to direct lending towards those Airbnb hosts based upon their earnings through the Airbnb platform. Mm -hmm. 
which bank has the API to absorb data from Airbnb and provide instant lending to Airbnb hosts through the platform? The answer is zero, mm. no banks. So again, I, I really insist that your bank might have a fancy innovation lab. Mm. It might have a, a branch that looks exactly like an Apple store. Yeah. Congratulations. It might have an app yeah. that's copied from a fintech app. And it might have as many POCs and press releases as you like following the latest fads or trends. Mm. But if your bank cannot lend through API, if your bank cannot deliver services to the buy side and the sell side of digital platforms, then there's a whole enormous part of the economy to come mm. where you will not be present. And that's a very dangerous place to be. People talk about uh, banks becoming dumb pipes. You know, the only worse thing than being a dumb pipe is being an empty pipe. Mm. Yeah, I think it's something good that they need to be strongly considering and something that would be really interesting to follow for the coming months and Absolutely. years to see how that really does play out and who does kind of get on board with that and you know solves that or aims to solve that before they're disrupted yeah. like we've seen in other industries. Absolutely there's nothing special about banking that means it can't be disrupted and mm. you know regulation is a double-edged sword in that respect that creates a barrier to entry but these things can't be relied upon so you know some people think it's like five you know you know, one minute to midnight for retail and but it could easily be five minutes to midnight for banking unless mm. the banking industry shows up with the APIs required to meet the financial needs of buyers and sellers uh, the demand side and the supply side on digital platforms that are going to be a huge part of the global economy yeah well, Tony, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. And um, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Global Digital Banker podcast. To listen to previous episodes, head to globaldigitalbanker.com, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you enjoyed the episode, it would be great if you could leave us a quick review or if you're interested in being a part of the show, drop us a note at gdbpodcast at rfigroup.com.